0: They took the blood of people who were really lonely and then the blood of people who were not, you know, were at the other end of the scale and had a lot of friends and social connection. And what they found was that there was a clear difference, so clear that the guy that did this work said, you know, he's like any immunologist who, you know, had any experience looking at gene expression um, within the immune system would see it instantly.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. It's 2020. No matter where or when you're listening to this, there's a lot of stuff going on. You could probably use a friend. I've always heard things like, a friend will help you bury a body. Good friends won't ask why there's a body there in the first place. While that's certainly inspirational, it doesn't really tell you what a friend is. What's a friend? How does a friend differ from, say, a family member, a lover, a colleague? For that, we need science. And fortunately, we've got Lydia Denworth. She's a contributing editor for Scientific American, a blogger for Psychology Today, and the writer of the new book, Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Lydia, thank you so much for being here.
0: It's so good to to be here, Bethany. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm going to start with something that seems kind of simple, but actually I guess turns out to be complex. What is friendship?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're right. That turns out to be harder to, to, to answer than, than people thought. And it's part of why scientists didn't study friendship per se for a really long time. Um, because you have to be able to define it and, and measure it and, and nobody was really quite sure. It's one of these things where we sort of, we think we know what it is, but then when you ask people, you get a, a wide variety of definitions. So I can tell you that now that evolutionary biologists and neuroscientists and anthropologists have spent more time thinking about this, the, the simplest definition, um, is, well, one way of defining it is that we think of a friend as a person with whom you do not have sex and to whom you are not related. But actually, I, the science of friendship is blurring the lines a bit. So I really define a friend qualitatively. A friend or a friendship needs three essential requirements or has three essential requirements. It's a long lasting relationship. So it's stable and reliable um, you've put in time together. It's positive. It makes both individuals feel good and it's cooperative. So there's some reciprocity there, some give and take. And of course, in a lot of friendships, there's more going on than those three things, but you've got to have that as a minimum. And that turns out to apply to other species as well, which is a, one reason why it feels like a good place to start as a definition.
1: I actually wanted to talk a little bit about other species because we think of friendship as a human thing first. We do. Um, and we'll joke that like dogs or hamsters or cats have little friends, right? Like right. if you have a cage with two hamsters in it, you'll be like, Oh, he needs a little friend. Um,
0: <laughs> do animals have friends? They do. They do. I'm going to go right out and say it. Animals have friends. Uh, the relationships do not look exactly the same as, as human friendships do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not something similar. So, or one of the ways to say it is that, that we have now found friendship or something like it in a wide range of species. We also see surprising Similarities in social behavior in the brains, even all the way down to like fish and much, much simpler, um, animals than, than humans and, and primates. And so, um, you know, the, the animal that gets studied the most are, are monkeys and apes, non-human primates, because their social behavior does look more like humans and their brains are more homologous to humans and so there there's really a lot we can learn but it was it was exactly this question like recognizing that that animals behaved in these ways that seemed to be significant in terms of how they treated each other and what they remembered of their past interactions and and things like that 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 got evolutionary biologists anyway and primatologists thinking Hang on, you know, friendship isn't just cultural. It does have a lot of cultural overlays. But if, if we're seeing it in these other species, then that tells us that there's an evolutionary story here. There's a, there's something deeper and more fundamental going on.
1: Yeah. I wondered if we could kind of get at the fundamentals there. Um, because, you know, you mentioned that, you know, there might be something like friendship in fish and, I don't know. I don't know that we can look at a fish and say, ah, that fish is definitely having a positive interaction that makes it <laughs> with this other fish.
0: <laughs> well, okay. No, I know. So, what it is in fish, I, maybe it's not, it might not be fair to call it friendship in fish, but what you do see, for instance, is that fish, um, so zebrafish is the study I'm thinking of. Zebrafish freeze when they, smell the presence of unfamiliar fish, like another shoal of fish, and then when they're with their own fish that they hang out with all the time, they relax. And there's a change in their, in the, in their brains uh, when they're in the presence of familiar fish versus unfamiliar fish. And so is that friendship? No, not exactly. But it does tell us that there's some differentiation, right? There's some social differentiation going on there. And, uh, and that's, that's the kind of, at you know, really, really simple behavior um that you can look at. But in, I suppose maybe the the simplest definition of friendship I came uh, I came across was a, a primatologist who said that who watches rhesus macaques and he said that for him their friends if they hang out if two animals hang out more often than chance would predict um, they are they are free. you can think of them as friends and that's how they look at it in like zebras and hyenas so somebody watched a big herd of zebras in Africa and sort of was able to track, I think uh, using aerial um, surveillance, they were able to track which animal hung out with which. And they did not just hang out with their relatives. They they did seem to sort of, you know, hang out in small groups of friends or pairs. and And they did hang out more often than you would imagine with, you know, the same animals.
1: So this sounds like, kind of frequency of association. Um, what does this kind of tell us about the evolution of friendship? What is its purpose? And what do we know about how it came about?
0: Well, the real research into what its purpose is. So, you know, evolutionary biologists sort of ask how and why so the how a friendship is literally the sort of physiolog what what physiological traits do you have to have or what do you have to be able to do what does your brain have to be able to do how do you interact what does the social behavior look like why is this question you're getting at you know what's this for why would why would animals have evolved to do this and to understand that question the the really significant work has been in in monkeys and apes primarily baboons and rhesus macaques and so I'll, I'll, I'll zero in on the baboon research because I think it's the most, um, telling, I guess. Uh, so f- over decades, there are studies in Africa that have, um, been going on for decades. The, the one that I'm thinking of in particular is in Amboseli in Kenya, southern Kenya, and it started in 1971. And they have been following the same, Groups of baboons. So, all the ones that live today are the, you know, um, descendants of the of the first troops of baboons they were watching. And so, they assumed that in baboons, because baboons are hierarchical, and they have a very, you know, strong dominance structure to their groups, and they hang out it's, – it's matrilineal, so they hang out in groups with the females all stay in the same group, and the males leave at sexual maturity – and move on into other groups. And so the females all hang out, the mothers, the sisters, the daughters, they all hang out in these groups. And, but there's more than one family in, in a baboon troop usually. And so they were watching these animals and they were thinking about evolutionary fitness, right? The, the idea of what is it that animals do? or need in order to improve their fitness their their survival right i mean at a very basic sort of darwinian level here we're talking about you on evo- in evolutionary terms it's pretty simple you're trying to have healthy babies and have them survive <laughs> and more of them and, and to live longer yourself, longevity. I mean, you can't really do much better than reproductive sex success and longevity in evolutionary terms. So they, they decided that they would try to account for what, what was the most important factor in, for these baboons in terms of their evolutionary success or their fitness, their inclusive fitness. And they thought, probably where animals sat in the dominance hierarchy was going to be the most important thing. But they noticed that the animals were socializing in these interesting ways and that even though they mostly hung out with family because that's who was right there, they had a head start kind of on that, that if, as does happen if you were a baboon in Africa, if let's say you lost your close family member to a lion or a leopard. The baboons would then work to make friends, well, see, there I go, using the term, right? But so they would seem to work. At that time, they didn't think of it that way exactly, but they noticed that the baboons would work to build bonds with the other animals, to... And there was a, there's a funny story of one in particular. Her name was Sylvia and she was really quite a nasty piece of work. And she was quite high up in the dominance hierarchy. And then she lost her primary grooming partner was her daughter, Sierra, who was killed by a lion. And to everybody's surprise, Sylvia started making overtures to the other baboons to seem to want to build bonds with them again and to try to groom with them. And. And that's not what the primatologists expected her to do, really, because that was so against the way she'd behaved for her entire life. And so what they did, inspired by watching Sylvia and wondering what is it that baboons get out of these bonds, they went back and they looked at their years of data over the lives of these animals. And what they found was that the, the female baboons in these troops with the strongest social bonds lived longer. And had more and healthier babies. There were sort of a series of studies that, that led to all of those findings. But in the end, that's what they found. And now, and then they found the same thing in another troop of baboons in Botswana. And they found it in rhesus macaques in various places. And so that was really a surprise because it said, what is it that these, there, there must be something that these positive social bonds are giving these animals that, that is really helping them survive. And, and it was, it was more important than where they sat in the dominance hierarchy. It was more important than any other variable that the primatologists were measuring. And that's, it's just not at all what people were expecting. And, and it also added to what we thought about what was going on in humans, because in humans by then, people had under started to understand that social relationships might have an effect on health or that they might be linked to your health. So they were able to say that there was a correlation between how long you lived and how isolated or integrated you were socially, but they didn't know why. And they thought that maybe it was, you know, that having a good friend around meant that you had someone to drive you to the hospital if you had to go. You know, that's a concept called social support. And that certainly matters. But baboons don't have, they don't drive each other to the hospital, right? So, so there had to be something deeper going on. And so from there, that's where we've kind of come to understand that, that this drive to connect and to build bonds and to cooperate, um, has been probably has, has been part of the evolutionary story, certainly for primates and humans are primates, uh, and, but also in, for other species, it seems.
1: And I actually wanted to go back a little bit to the story of Sylvia because you mentioned her in the book, um, specifically, um, the meanie, mean girl Sylvia. Um, yes. <laughs> and how her grooming partner dies and she tries to like make nice to the other baboons. And I, I actually, I noticed you didn't really like finish her story. What happened? Uh. Did it work? <laughs> like, did they forgive her? Was it like, revenge served cold like what happened because sylvia was mean
0: sylvia was really nasty yeah she was she was the queen of mean um she (laughs) she she did yeah she made some other friends uh but not you know um she was also getting up there in age by the time that that sierra died so um so i can't i To be honest, I don't remember exactly how much longer she lived, but, uh, but she did, she had some success. Uh, and, um, so it does, it's, it's probably a mixed ending. It's not a, you know, it's not like she sort of made a best friend and then, um, and, and all was good because the other baboons would let her groom them because she was higher in status. But she, then she did, she made a couple of, of new friends and, uh, she did okay, but, um, it was more the impulse to make friends that was interesting to the scientists in her case, right? That was the important, the critical question.
1: Oh no, I get it. I just I just kinda wanted to know. I know, you know we I all know. make social mistakes and maybe we've all <laughs> been mean.
0: And we try to recover. I we would try like to apologize.
1: know that redemption is a thing. Um, I know. <laughs> but I was also struck a lot of your book is actually um as with Sylvia, her primary grooming partner was actually her daughter. Um yes. and you talk a lot in the book about the relationship between parents and children. Um because There's not all that much research out there about friendship, but there's a ton about parents and kids. How is friendship different from the relationship between parent
0: and child? Uh, Well, okay, I will get to how it's different, but let me start with why, why, what's the same and why there is information about parents and kids in the book. Because yeah, people would say, what, wait. Why are we reading about mothers and babies when we're thinking about friendship? And one reason is because it was in appreciating the importance of the relationship between mothers and babies. So primarily the work of the British psychiatrist John Bowlby and the American psychologist Harry Harlow who studied who famously separated rhesus macaques. Uh, But they were the first in the mid-20th century to really say there's something about the love and affection in these relationships that is truly important on an evolutionary level. It's not just a nice byproduct. Mothers are not just there to feed the babies. They give them something more than that. And that was such a revolutionary idea in science. Uh, And it's hard... I think it's hard for us in the in you know today in 2020 to believe that nobody thought that before or that that was such a revolutionary idea. But it and yeah, but it was, it was. And so first, you had to appreciate relationships at all before you could appreciate friendship, right? And the other thing is that in studying babies who do not have strong bonds. So for instance, the children who grew up in Romanian orphanages, and who were taken away from, from, well, taken away from their parents, and then didn't have strong caregiver relationships. When we see all that goes wrong for those kids, um, psychologically and physiologically, it tells us something about the importance of what they're missing. And <clears throat> so all of that is kind of the precursor. You have to lay those foundations scientifically that start to show that there are benefits to st- these strong positive bonds, and then there are these major problems when they are missing, and then you sort of can extend that to friendship. Now, the to get to the question of, you know, what do parents – how is that relationship the same or, do, or how is it different – Parents are the beginning of children developing a social brain. And so I think we often think all about how in those first years of life, you know, parents job is to protect, to feed and clothe and shelter these, these babies and young children to teach them to talk, to teach them to walk, to, you know, uh, teach them how to start to learn. But a huge part of what parents are doing is priming the social brain in babies um and in young children and it's a critical it's a critical role and they're setting them up to have friends later in life to be social creatures right and so the better parents do that um, the better off the kids are but then there are limits that that relationship between parent and child is um is really a vertical relationship, right? There's enough, the parent has more authority. They're not equals. Uh, and, and that kind of relationship, there are things you can't get from that. And so that is why when kids get to school, and this is true in all kinds of cultures and all, even in hunter gatherer societies, there's something that shifts when, when kids are about five to seven, they get asked, they, they, they're treated differently in the society. They they go to school in many cultures at that point, or they have to contribute more if you're talking about a basic hunter-gatherer society. There are there there's a shift in what's expected and and when they go to schools, they hang out more with their peers, right? So they have very horizontal relationships. These are same age peers, and there are things that they get from that. That they can't get from the parent relationship. So they learn more about trust and loyalty and cooperation. They learn how not just to receive support, but to give support, which is a very critical piece of friendship because it has to have that reciprocity, that give and take. Um, and they then kids, you know, as they get older, they're going to move further away. What happens is that the the relationship that is primary for a child is with its parent or caregiver, often the mother. Uh, and the mothers can literally reduce stress levels in the children you see, you know, if you... <laughs> poor kids in these science, they they subject them to stress tests, right? They make kids do things like public speaking and math problems, which apparently are universally stressful because that's what (laughs) laboratory stress tests involve. Uh, And so, they have age-appropriate versions of that for young kids. Uh, And if the mom is there, it will reduce the cortisol levels in the kids. And if she's not it doesn't um but then once kids go through puberty mom doesn't have that power anymore she moves out of the kids hypothalamus which is so interesting right it's some tells us something about how adolescence really is about this moment of moving away from your the family that you're born in and uh, you know moving out into the world and friends can sometimes Come in and replace that, that effect. And they can lower your stress levels, um, when you're an adolescent and an adult. And so now I don't know if I've exactly answered your question, but, um, but that's the, um, those, those are the, the basics.
1: So you talked about horizontal relationships as, as kids kind of get older. Um, how are those horizontal friend relationships different from, say mating relationships like you know sexual partners you know cuz uh, yeah. you know a lot of people these days will say oh you know my partner is my best friend
0: they do which is so interesting um not every so that seems to be a western habit we have first of all um to say that your partner is your best friend and so this is part of what i was i mentioned at the beginning that that in many ways I've come to think of friendship qualitatively, and it can apply to any relationship we have. It can apply to a romantic relationship if that relationship really hits all the definitions of, of friendship, if it's cooperative and positive and and long lasting. Um, but of course, the whole the sexual passion and and that part of the relationship is different and it's not a requirement at all of friendship and it and it does um tend to make people closer <laughs> it's very intimate um and so it's it's it, it is its own thing and yet uh, so, and yet it's, there are ways in which it's similar. And I mean, just on that question of saying that somebody's your best friend who's your partner, I think it's fascinating that when they asked people in Jacksonville, Florida, thousands of people in a study, you know, um, is your partner your best friend, your romantic partner, your best friend, or is your spouse your best friend? I think they were all married. Is your spouse your best friend? And 60%, about 60% said yes. Uh-huh. And then when they asked the same question of people in Mexico City, almost no one said yes. And so I, that is, is just a sign of, um, that's what I'm thinking of when I say that it's, it's a certain cultures have this idea that your partner should be your best friend, but others just don't use that terminology because presumably the state of marriage is not terrible in Mexico. It's just that they don't use the word friend to describe their spouse. Um, but that has become kind of the, the, the name of the game in the US, right? That's what everybody's aiming for is that your your romantic partner is your soulmate and your best friend and all these things, which is a lot of pressure to put on one relationship, but um, some people do achieve it.
1: And, you know, you've been talking a lot about kind of qualitative. So I'm kind of thinking in my head and seeing kind of a spectrum of friendship, I guess, <laughs> that extends <laughs> from like, I don't know you. <laughs> Right. To, you know, uh, like somewhere shading into best friends for life. Um, are there, and you mentioned, I I was really interested in the study that you cited in the book about, um, people in Mexico City saying their partners are not their best friends. Right. Um, how else does friendship differ across culture? Are there different definitions that people use for friendship? Are there different ways that people think of friends?
0: there are there are although so unfortunately, most of the research that's been done has been done in western societies, so um you know what are known as uh as weird societies in in science western educated industrial uh you probably remember rich and something else I forget what the d is uh, democratic <laughs> thank you, thank you there we go <laughs> um, and so I think eighty percent of the research. Uh, is done on, on those societies, right? And so, so there's a limit to what we know about, um, or we don't have the same level of information about friendship in other cultures. But, um, but there are some anthropologists, just a few, who have gone out really looking at friendship in cultures around the world. And, and there was two ways, two things they were doing. One was they were looking for what are the similarities, uh, and what are the themes that come up a, a, the most often when you ask people in other cultures what friendship is. And they hark back to the definition I gave at the beginning. So I think the four most common things across cultures were that friends make you feel good, so that positive piece of it, and that friends are, ha, are willing to help, and then as a sort of corollary, but an additional point, especially in times of crisis, um, and that would be the cooperative give and take reciprocity piece of it. And then the last thing in human cultures, most common, interestingly to me, was gift giving. Um, and at first I thought that was surprising. But then I realized that that is about this, the gifts are the symbolic sort of they're symbolic of the value of the relationships and they don't have to be valuable gifts they're they can be you know flowers that will die or chocolates that will get eaten <clears throat> but they um but they do say this is that you are important to me um and apparently that's a very common thing so you have those are the things that were the most common and they do kind of echo the same definitions of friendship that we find in other sciences, including in evolutionary biology and looking at primates. The differences culturally are, um, the there are, of course, there are some differences in what's expected in the way. Um, so, you know, some societies are more communal and some are more individualistic. So generally, for instance, the U.S. is seen as, as a more individualistic society, and and a lot of Asian cultures, like in Japan and China, are more uh, communally oriented, and so that can affect friendship in terms of whether you so here in the US, you can get plenty of people kind of assuming that they don't need other people to to get by, uh, which is not true. Uh, And in Asia, perhaps the result is the is the opposite, you know, that more things are done for the group, and less for the individual. Um, I think the most interesting cultural difference, and this is a work that I describe in the book, was when they asked um 30,000 people in a whole bunch of different countries to what they would do in this in a philosophical problem that's called the passenger's dilemma so the setup is that you imagine that you're driving in a car with your friend and your friend is going faster than the speed limit and hits a pedestrian Let's say the pedestrian is okay, but your friend hits the pedestrian. And the question is, you know, your friend was speeding. Do you tell the police that your friend was speeding or do you lie to protect your friend? It's the psychological test of would you really help bury the body? Would you help bury the body? (laughs) Would you lie to protect your friend? Exactly. Against, you know, faced with a police officer standing there saying, you know, what, what how fast was your friend going? What would you do? And the answer depended dramatically by country, by nation. And so in the US, people were very unlikely to lie to protect their friends. And in Venezuela, they were v- much more likely to lie. So it was one in 10 would lie in the U.S. and seven in 10 in Venezuela would lie to protect their friend. Uh, and then other countries were kind of arrayed anywhere in between there. Um, I forget the exact statistics, but I'm going to say that maybe France was like three in 10 and uh, uh, Switzerland, I know, was down with the U.S. And so the question was, well, why? What's really going on here? And There are a bunch of theories, but the one that really seems to stand up and hold water is that there's a relationship between the willingness to lie for your friend and the general political and economic security in a country or insecurity in a country. So in places where it feels like you can't rely on institutions, but you need to rely on your friend, people were more likely to lie for their friends. Um, which is really interesting, right? Um, so it, it sort of uh, gives you a sense that of how the environment the surrounding environment might affect the dis, you know the relationships between individuals.:
1: well, and it also makes me wonder if those numbers will change. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> the number of people who will lie for their friends. <laughs> and then, well, right. I mean, and, and this is, there's a whole lot we don't know about this and it needs to get explored much more carefully, but it's awfully intriguing, right? And it does, and it does, yes, it, it does indicate, um, how, how some of these, these cultural differences are really circumstantial, right? And yes, uh, circumstances change, then our tendencies might change.
1: Um, I was also struck when I was reading your book, you know, friendship is kind of defined as this very reciprocal thing, you know, you help each other, you're willing to help bury the body and presumably they are too. Um, But not, friendships don't necessarily work that way in real life. They're not always equal. Right? No. You have like, One friend likes another friend more, you know, like you you always have that thing in middle school where you're like, Oh, I think so and so is my best friend. And she's like, "Mm, Yeah, I'm your best friend, (laughs) but you're not my best friend. And it's like, Oh,
0: it was funny because I, I, I years ago, I was talking to another mom who was saying that her kid actually said that like that. Her daughter, I think, thought of my son as one of her best friends, but she knew that for him, she was probably not one of his best friends. And like the daughter was self-aware enough to say all that. and i I had a feeling in that case, it was um because i they were friends. they did It was just that he had all these good. Uh, male friends that he thought of as his best friends. And so he probably just didn't think of this girl as his best friend, but in her case she did. But anyway, it gets at like that. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Like kids, you ask the way that psychologists and sociologists do this work is they often ask people to nominate their friends, right? Which means to give us the list of the people that you think are your closest friends. And then they ask everybody else and it's confidential. And it's kind of amazing how often it doesn't match up, right? <laughs> the people I name might not name me. That's like and, the world's most stressful game show. Oh god, I know. So <laughs> this is why it has to be confidential, right? It's uh but but it so yes, it's not always even and it's not always um and you know, it's not always happy. If we know all that, but what really matters is that We feel like it could be, for instance, that one person just has more friends, um, and the other has fewer people, but that they still have this, if they still feel that they've got this person they can count on when they need them, and in fact, the person is there for them when they need them, then that works. Uh, so it doesn't, I mean, of course, it's best when it is completely reciprocated, um, and, and, So, in a study in middle school, the, when they did this with, um, basically 6,000 sixth graders in California, I think 12% were not named by any other kid. Oh, I know. It makes your heart just break. Um, and, and those are the kids that we need to worry about because it really makes a difference psychologically, uh, in in middle school and all through life but especially in middle school to have a pal and to have someone you can count on um and so you know i think it is important and i think adults are aware of that sometimes i think what adults are less aware of is just how critical friendship is in a formative way even when it's going well for kids, like, you know, cause we can get annoyed by how much kids want to be with their friends. And, uh, and I'm not saying that they always should get to be, but I think adults should recognize or should be a little bit more aware of how normal and developmentally appropriate that is. And that the intensity that kids feel about friendship is, is exactly what they should be doing at that point.
1: And I was very struck uh while reading your book about the kind of changes in friendship that scientists have looked at as people go through life. And, you know, as you mentioned in the book, a lot of these studies are done in middle school because let's just make middle school worse. Great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was really interesting because um you noted some research that showed that some people really switch friends up as they go through puberty. There's a massive upheaval other people don't really switch it up as much. Um, They tend to have the same friends for really, really long periods of time while, and this kind of persists into adulthood. Whereas, you know, other people kind of switch friends. What's the difference going on there?
0: Well, yeah. Okay. So um, actually most of us do switch friends in, so the, the study that you're referring to, in fact said that two thirds of sixth graders changed friends from, between September and June, two thirds. Right. And so, uh, and that I think partly has to do with the American school system where most kids who are in public schools are changing schools in sixth grade and they're going from a smaller environment where they're in one classroom into, a larger school that's feeding from a bunch of different other smaller schools and where they are now moving from class to class, they have suddenly a much bigger social pool. So maybe in September they're hanging out with the handful of kids they already knew when they got there. But by June they have gotten to know all these other kids and and things have shifted. And part of what's happening, though, is not just the context and the environment, but also that is such the age when we are – forming our identities and our sense of selves and beginning to pursue specific interests more. You know, I think middle school is where you start to imagine whether you're going to be an athlete or an actor or a musician or a computer programmer or some combination of all of those things. And not too surprisingly, you tend to hang out with the kids who are doing the thing that you do Um and that you're interested in. And so some of it is a very natural shift, but it can feel really painful in the moment. And I do think it's, I was so surprised by that, that level of instability in sixth grade. And I think it is for one thing, maybe helpful for kids. If adults can tell them that, like how normal this is and how many other people are changing friends now. Right. So you're not the only one, but the second thing I thought was that there's a little bit of a metaphor for the trajectory of our entire lives. Like, is if you think about the way friendship changes in middle school, that it's, or it's, a, it's, you know, it's like if you think about your whole life and how many of the friends you had when you were, uh, 12 or 16 or 18, do you still have today? Some of us have a lot of them. It's true, but all of us have met a bunch of other people as well. Um, and it is kind of interesting. So some people hang on to that core group and others really don't so much. Uh, I don't have any statistics on which, you know, who does what or what's more likely. It is, I do think part of that is circumstantial though. Like if, if you don't, if you stay kind of close to home, say, you know, where you grew up and it the, being nearby the people you grew up with makes a really big difference because it just makes it easier to maintain those relationships much harder to do if you move much further away or you keep moving um, and of course it's also the case that as we get into adulthood some people marry and have kids and other people don't and that tends to be a big dividing line because your time gets allocated differently. Your, your attend time and attention. And, you know, famously the single people hate it when the married people all start having kids because, um, that's all they want to talk about. (laughs) They can't do anything anymore that the single people want to do. And that's real. That's true. Right. Um, those things happen. And, uh, but what's interesting is that later in life people sort of come back together sometimes, um, and, you know, when they pick their heads up from either the really busyness of careers or from raising families, we do start to have more time again um, for friends. And what I hope is that people are using it to be with their friends because it's a really critical um, thing to do to set yourself up for a healthy kind of end of life.
1: Yeah. And that's actually a great segue into talking about friendship and health. Yes. Um, Because we know friendship is important when people don't have it, even if they're introverts, they they seem to notice the difference. Um, And can you talk about the importance of friendship to health? Because it, it really does make a difference.
0: Oh, it's I mean, that's a huge part of of why I wrote this book is that the understanding that there's a biology to friendship and that it's linked to our health is is the critical thing that people it's the new news here, I guess you could say. Friendship is as important for your health as diet and exercise. Really, actually, maybe even more so if you look at the studies. And so that's that's critical. And it means that it should be a priority, just like we we schedule time to go to the gym, right, religiously, or we try to, (laughs) and we feel guilty when we don't. Somehow it's the opposite with our friends. Like we don't, you know, we say we're going to get together, but then we cancel on them all the time, or we don't actually make the plans. And, and we feel guilty sometimes when we do hang out with our friends, rather than like working later or being with our family. It's the opposite of the, you know, the guilt you feel when you don't go to the gym, but you feel the guilt sometimes if you're just like hanging out with your friend, because it feels like a more frivolous thing to do, but it's it's as important for your health. And so that's good news. It means we have permission to hang out with our friends and that we are doing something good for our bodies. Um, and I'm guessing you're going to ask how. So let's talk about exactly what friendship does. I was just about to ask. Our, <laughs> yeah, Yes. Uh, fair. So friendship and social connection on the one side of the coin or social isolation and loneliness on the other impact a, a long list of physiological things they affect your cardiovascular functioning your cognitive health your mental health your immune system functioning your stress responses and even the rate at which your cells age like the little caps telomeres on the edges of you know they 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 shorten over time and they shorten faster in people who are lonelier so you are biologically aging faster if you are lonelier Um, and 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 to get right down to the nitty gritty, you live longer if you have friends and you're more likely to die earlier. If you are lonely now, of course, that's on a population level. So, cause I, I meet people who say, well, but my mom had lots of friends and she died in, you know, at 60 or something. And of course that happens. There's going to be interval, individual, individual variation. But if we look at the big picture, the people who are have more friends and are more socially connected and are more satisfied in their social relationships are the ones who are healthier and live longer. And the statistics There's a couple of different studies, a couple of different ways of looking at this. But, um, the first one that really drew everyone's attention came in 1988 and it was just a handful of studies had been done that allowed you to look at longevity or mortality, mortality and, and relationships. And it showed that you were basically loneliness roughly doubled the rate of mortality or the risk of mortality. So you were twice as likely to die if you were really lonely, um, more recently, in 2010, there was a big meta-analysis, so a study of studies, that combined data from 148 studies, and it and had a 308,000 people in the study, and the average length of those studies was over seven and a half years, and what they found was that the people with the strongest social relationships with the most friends were 50% more likely to survive the, the seven and a half year or the duration of the study, so call that the seven and a half years, right? So you are 50% more likely to survive across close to a decade if you had good friends than if you didn't in all of these studies.
1: But I I just want to be clear that when we talk about, you know, doubling your risk of death or being 50% more likely to survive, your risk of death is pretty small.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Overall,
1: (laughs) is a very small risk. Right. It's slightly bigger.
0: But doubling your risk of mortality... Was on a par with smoking. And, you know, we all know how bad smoking is for us, right? And, uh, and so to link loneliness with smoking was really a big deal. Um, and, and uh, people have probably seen those headlines because that's gotten picked up a lot that, you know, it's as bad for your health as lonely, as loneliness is as bad for you as smoking and obesity and things like that. And it is, it, it really is.
1: Um, I wanted to kind of get a little more into the mechanisms you've mentioned, things like cardiovascular health, um, and cognitive health and, and that sort of thing. Um, but in the book, you specifically talk about inflammation, um, yes. and how inflammation is affected by friendship or loneliness. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I think this was some of the most interesting work that I cited in the book. Um, and it, and it's just one example of where they have gotten up. A much clearer picture of how it is that being lonely or connected is changing your body and your cells. And, um, and so what they did was they looked at, they ran a genomic analysis. So sequencing of the genome of the immune system cells. So white blood cells, leukocytes that, you know, are the sort of fighters in your immune system. And they took the blood of people who were really lonely and then the blood of people who were not, you know, were at the other end of the scale and had a lot of friends and social connection. And what they found was that there was a clear difference, so clear that the guy that did this work said, you know, he's like, any immunologist who, you know, had any experience looking at gene expression um, within the immune system would see it instantly that, that the genes that regulated inflammation and also virus response, by the way, um, were very different in the lonely people versus the, the gene expression, just to be clear, not the genes themselves, but the gene expression, meaning whether they, whether they're activated, whether they're regulated, turned on or off, you know. Because we all have genes that, you know, make up the blueprint of who we are, but what they do and how they affect us depends a lot on our experience, right? And our environment. And so, so some, you know, some genes for sure, like you're going to have blue eyes or you're not going to have blue eyes, but your propensity for inflammation, you might have the genes that, that, you know, that speak to that. But they may not speak up, (laughs) is one way of putting it, right? They may or may not sort of get turned on. And in the lonely people, the susceptibility to inflammation was much higher. And in the socially connected people, they were much more resilient um, to inflammation.
1: So it's not that the lonely people were showing signs of injury. It's that they would respond more severely to injury?
0: (laughs) Right. That their susceptibility to, so that they, their susceptibility to inflammation and to viruses was both, um, was increased and, and the other, and that, so that didn't mean that, you know, they weren't seeing like the virus at work, but the cells there, there are in your immune system, there are white blood cells that are sort of managing your viral response and they were acting differently essentially, in the lonely people versus the people with lots of friends.
1: I do want to kind of ask for kind of another definition here. We've talked about the definition of friends. What is the definition of lonely? Yeah. Because, you know, some people might say, oh, I have, you know, relatively few friends. I am lonely. Other people might be constantly surrounded by people and feel lonely. So what what is lonely? Yes.
0: yes, no, you're right. It's It's a really important question. And, and it is. So in this work, loneliness has come to mean the mismatch between the amount of social connection you want, and the amount of social connection you have. So that's why it is possible not to feel lonely as long as you've got one or two good friends that you hang out with and if you're content to spend a good bit of time by yourself but you do have everybody really does need those handful of people around them that they can turn to but maybe you've only got one or two and in fact the step change in terms of your health the really big step change is from zero to one in terms of friends. Um, that's which I think is really interesting. You do not have to be the life of the party. You do not have to be friends with everyone you meet, but you do, you do need to have that, that core group. It's also possible on the flip side, like you said, to be lonely in a crowd if that crowd isn't making you feel like you belong or that you're connected. And so, um, there's another way of thinking of loneliness that we usually think of as sort of just so isolation often does mean just not interact, like the numbers of people you interact with. Um, loneliness is more again at the qualitative side of it, how you feel about the interaction and how connected you feel.
1: Um And I I also want to kind of pursue this a little bit because you note in the book, and I, I'm sure anybody who doesn't live under a rock right now will agree that the word friendship has changed <laughs> over time. Yes. Um, yes. So for example, I've got loads of friends on Facebook that I haven't spoken to in 20 years. Yes. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, does this mean friendship itself has changed? What is friendship in the world of the internet?
0: friendship itself has not changed. It is alive and well in the age of social media and the internet Um, because, and when I say that I'm talking about friendship in the way that I defined it at the beginning, these sort of strong relationships that you've had for a long time that are positive, that make you feel good, that have reciprocity and cooperation in them. And there's a reason why we call our Facebook friends, our Facebook friends, right? It's a distinction that's different <laughs> from our best friends, right? Um, and you know, a BFF person versus, versus a Facebook friend. Everybody knows what those things are, and they're not the same. And so sometimes I think that we sell ourselves short, you know, or we we're smarter than that, and that we should we should acknowledge that that you know that having lots of friends. Who, and interestingly, the research. Most recently the research on social media and well-being has started to show there's more rigorous work and it's beginning to clarify the picture which has been very muddy for a while but it's starting to show that that there yes there are mixed effects and there are some negative effects and some positive effects from social media on well-being but all of the effects are small again we're talking at a large population level here and the one that is the strongest and it's positive is with relationships and so seems to be the case is that if you use social media as one more channel with which to communicate with people you see in other ways and have, you know, other kinds of relationships with it strengthens those bonds. If social media is just, is the only way that you interact with someone, then that can serve some purposes, but it is limited. And those are not people that you would necessarily consider your closest friends. Um, if you it's also true that people with big online networks tend to have bigger offline networks so there's more of a r- mirror effect of our online and offline lives than we sometimes appreciate um and then now that isn't to say that there aren't some people who are um who are made to feel more th- that who for whom there are some negative effects socially from social media um but it's looking like somebody, for instance, who's got more depression and anxiety um, has that to begin with, and then it's then exacerbated by social media. And so that doesn't mean that there's not a problem there, but it means that the, we have to dig a little deeper for where the problem started. You know, was it the social media that caused it? Or was it the social media exacerbated something that was already there. That's not the same thing, right? And so I think that's one of the things that scientists are beginning to figure out about this, um, about this new era that we're in. For sure, we need to put down our phones when we are with people in person because it does disrupt um from the connection that we have in person. And there's work showing that, that we're more distracted and we're less connected. And, you know, even eye contact basically primes the social parts of the brain in a really good and healthy way and gets your communication centers in your brain going. And And eye contact in person is different from looking at somebody on a video screen. Uh, and so it's now... There are times, so you and I are having this conversation in the time of coronavirus and the, the need for social distancing. And so I can say that just last night, I had a Zoom video conference with, with six of my good friends from college. Um, and we'd never done that before, but we were inspired to do that by the anxiety everybody was feeling um, over this, you know, what's going on today. And so I think what's going to happen is right now, we should be embracing digital friendship more than ever, because now it's going to serve a necessary purpose. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't get right back to hanging out together in real life, as soon as we can.
1: I mean, there are some people who would dispute the idea that it's not a real friendship unless you're, you're hanging out in real life. Um, I mean, there, there are many people now who, for example, like some of their best friends are people they've met online and maybe have only met in person once or twice. Um, you know, and and people form entire, like people get married,
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know? So, right. But demonstrably, eventually those people are meeting in real life if they're getting married. Right. So, um, I, yes, no, you're right. And that's true. And there are, that is possible. I think it is rarer though. It is not the, you know, the norm is that we have this much bigger group of Facebook friends that we mostly don't interact with, we could really enjoy the interaction we have with them on Facebook, or we could find them incredibly annoying, you know, all things are possible. Um, but we usually those relationships are more limited, um, but not always, you're right. I mean, the exception there, and there's always the exceptions, or the, you know, I don't know. Uh, I think it's, it is true, though, that um, most people, their strongest relationships require more than just a social media interaction. That's just a piece of how they interact, but not all of how they interact. And I do think that most social media friendships that become really strong, either they become strong because they then migrate offline too, or there's some purpose they're serving. Like for instance, you could think of people in a cancer survivor chat group or, um LGBTQ kids, you know, living at different parts of the country who really find something that they get from the people that they know online that they can't get where they are, right? And then those relationships can be incredibly powerful and strong. And that is one of the great things that social media does for us.
1: I wanted to kind of go back a little bit to the idea of loneliness because there is a lot of rhetoric currently around that we're having a loneliness epidemic yes um and that this is particularly centered on men. And there's this idea that men are bad at friendships. And
0: mm-hmm. one of the things I appreciated about your book is that you do not agree. <laughs> <laughs> I do not agree. Well, I, right. I mean, I, as the mother of three young men and, and married to a man, I, I have a house full of men with very strong friendships that I look at all the time and I celebrate some of those friendships in the book. Um So first of all, I just can see firsthand that, that, that. Uh, You know, it's that, that they're not all bad at this. And then I do think there's become this kind of mythology in our culture today that women are terrific at friendship and men are duds. And, um, and where that comes from is there is a stereotype that women do friendship face to face. They talk all the time, right? Talk, 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 talk. talk. And men do friendship side by side. So they do things together. They they play sports or watch sports. They sit on bar stools next to each other. Um, and and there is some truth to that stereotype, but part of what it's getting at is that um is that women think that the way they do friendship is better, uh, and that you have to have all this self-disclosure and things like that to make a good friendship. And I will say this, that sharing an, an emotional experience is a part of what makes a friendship deeper. But there are some different ways to get at that. It doesn't always have to be that, sharing the emotional experience literally means that you tell the other person everything that you're thinking and feeling. Um, it, it can be that, you know, you're on a team and you win the championship and the joy that you all feel together really bonds you in some way. Um, and I'm not saying that it's all exactly the same equivalent, but it, and it is true that men in a lab forced to reveal, you know, when they bring two straight, friends, male friends into a lab and they have them sort of engage in these exercises where they're ask each other questions and have to give sort of, you know, more intimate answers, they do feel closer at the end. They tend to feel more freaked out by it than women do, but they do feel closer at the end. So that does serve some purpose, but so does some of the ways that men interact. And it also turns out that when people have looked at All of the research, you know, again, they've done sort of meta-analyses, studies of studies, pulled together a lot of data. The similarities between how men and women think about friendship far outweigh the differences. So I thought that was really interesting and important. I guess it's not that there's not some... Truth to the stereotypes about men, but I think it's more interesting to recognize how much is going on there that's good. Now I say that. And then just the other weekend, I was watching Saturday Night Live and John Mullaney, the comedian was the, was the host. I don't know if you saw it. And his whole opening monologue was a riff about men and friends <laughs> and how they don't have any. So, um, <laughs> and he was talking about men his father's age. So between 60 and 75 and how what they have is their wives. Friends, husbands, and that that's not the same thing. Um, and I think it's funny because it strikes a chord and we all do think of men we know like that. You know, men don't always, I think this is where the cultural stuff comes in. Men are not always conditioned to work at friendship and to be, you know, women are the ones that are sort of generally directing the social life in a, in a couple or a family and women work harder to maintain their friendships outside of marriage than men do once they get married. That's all true. Um, And I think, so I think we could do better on all fronts on that. Men should be encouraged to value their friendships, to talk to their friends and, you know, but we should also stop dissing them all the time and we should celebrate what's great about male friendship.
1: And, I also was wondering if you could talk about, there's this pervasive idea that making friends when you're an adult, especially after college, is hard. Yes. (laughs) If not hard, impossible. Right. Um, do, you don't really address that in the book very much. Um, can you talk about that a little? Like, is that, is that true? I,
0: I do, no, well, so I do address it in, um, In some ways, and I have thought a lot about this because this comes up a lot in, in talking to people about this subject. So two things are really at work when once you get out of college, um, time and motivation. And so time is the is the obvious factor. And yet I'm not sure people really have grappled with just why that is such a big piece of, of why it's so hard to have friends in, in adulthood. And first of all, I actually reject the premise that it's, you know, that, that it's impossible to have friends, uh, to make new friends as an adult. Uh, people do all the time. Um, but they do have, it is harder in that, like, when you're in high school and college, I mean, you're just spending, you're literally spending your days hanging out with all these other people that are the same age as you that are potential friends. Right. And you have a lot more downtime. And in one study, um, when they asked, so what they did was they, they sent these text messages to all the participants, like every two hours. And they said, who are you with? Um, you know, in your, in your downtime, adolescents were with their friends 30% of the time and adults between 40 and 65 were with their friends only 4% of the time. And then, Older adults over 65 were with their friends only 8% of the time. So a little better, but not, you know, not that much better, right? But that's because those adults presumably they're living alone, whereas like college kids are living in a dorm room with their friends, right? And so um, time really matters because not just because we don't have that much of it in adulthood, but also because it takes time to make a friend. So somebody counted. God bless him. Uh, a researcher at the University of Kansas did this really interesting study, um, that where he looked at how many hours it takes to make a friend and he found that, um, it was about 50 hours of time together to go from being an acquaintance to a friend, a casual friend, and then 90 hours to be a good friend and 200 hours of time together to consider someone a best friend. Um, and, of course, what you do in that time matters. So you might work as a colleague with someone for 600 hours and not think of them as your friend. And that's because that's only one piece of it, right? The t- time is just one piece, but it's an essential piece for the people that we will become close to. And when you're a busy adult with kids in a career or eat one or both or whatever, you know, it's harder to come by. We live by our, you know, we don't live with our friends anymore. Um, and so we have to actively work at it. If we want to build those relationships, we have to that's part of why we have to put in the time and we have to kind of schedule it more intentionally and think about it. If you put in the time early, it's another reason why we tend to stay friends with people we knew um, from college, say, or high school, is because we put in all that time with them so we've built those relationships. And then we just have to maintain it, but that's a little easier than making those that depth of connection in the first place, right? But then the motivation piece in adulthood is... And this is something I didn't really get into in the book, but I've come to understand more or think about more um, in the months since it's been out in the world in talking to people about this. But so I think we we often you – know, or putting yourself out there to make a new friend as an adult means making yourself vulnerable often, Right it's, it's, you do off, you have to, sometimes you have to, it's like, you have to make the first move, but in friendship, right? Not in romance, but you, you have to say, Hey, you want to go for a drink after this or after work? Or, you know, um, you, you have to, or you have to in, go out to an event where you think you're going to meet people that you might become friends with. And, you know, a really good way to do that is a sort of straight, it's pretty Basic, but it is looking for groups with shared interests. Like if you like to hike and you live in a place where there's hiking, try to join a hiking club. Or I was I was actually interviewed um, for a show in Las Vegas. Apparently, I didn't know this. Las Vegas is famous for being unfriendly and for being a city where it's really hard to make friends Uh I would say that does not surprise me. Yeah, I guess. Well, so one (laughs) of the things is that Las Vegas is, has a lot of transient people, right? People move in and out a lot. Um, which was interesting to me because I lived in Hong Kong for two years as an expat. And so expat communities are very like that, right? Every people are coming and going all the time. And on some, there are ways in which that could be a benefit because there are a lot of other people in the same boat as you, but also the people who stay put really just don't want to put in the energy to make friends with somebody new who they think is then going to leave. Right. So, um, so you do tend to get some stratification, but the, but, uh, apparently in Las Vegas, there was this very active community around craft beer and people who were into it had these clubs and they went to these bars and they all had become really good friends. So there are ways of, um, of seeking things out, but you do have to, you have to be willing to sort of get yourself up off the couch, turn off the Netflix and go to the thing. And that can be really scary when you don't know anyone to begin with. You don't have, if you don't have anyone to go with you to that first craft beer event, you know, it's, it's awkward. Um, And so that's what I mean. Maybe motivation isn't exactly the right word, but sort of determination, let's call it that determination to that. This is important and that you're going to do this. And so some people are able to do that and make themselves vulnerable and some people are not. And just as a little word of encouragement, there's some research on something called the liking gap, which is that our perception of how much people like us when they meet us is wrong. We tend to think that they like us less than they do. <laughs> they they so we need to give ourselves a little bit more benefit of the doubt and um and you know we're not necessarily screwing it up every time we go meet new people as an adult.
1: That is that is comforting. Yes. Um I just wanted to ask um you know you've kind of become an expert on friendship. Um yes. and this is you know it's a time in our lives when everybody could use a good friend. Yes. How what, what do you think is the key to being a good friend and perhaps a good friend in a time where maybe you
0: should not be a good friend physically close to someone right. else? Right. Well, I, I have, yes, I've been thinking about this a lot. And so uh, being a good friend, what it takes to be a good friend kind of echoes the definition of friendship that I, that I gave earlier. So one is that, you know, you're reliable and you show up <laughs> that, that you, Are that there's a reciprocity, so a give and take means that you, you know, if if friends you want friends to be there for you when you need them, you have to be there for them um, when they need you, and that might not always be. It doesn't have to be like a really equal tit for tat kind of accounting. And of course, those those are not our what our closest relationships look like. In our closest friendships, we're not really keeping score, but over the course of time, it should it should even out, right? Like, so one person's in a crisis for a while and they need help, but then, you know, down the road, the other person's going to need help too. And so you you need to be mindful of your part in that to be a good friend. Um, and I think just showing up, is so, so critical. And that can mean showing up to a birthday party. It can mean showing up when like somebody's parent dies. It can mean showing up by sending a text when you know that somebody, you know, is homesick from work or, and now in this time of, of social distancing, it means sh- definitely showing up from a distance, but there are ways to be helpful. Um, whether it's, I mean, I, and it is interesting. I'm seeing on, on Facebook, I'm seeing a lot of discussion of how, Communities are grouping together to try to figure out how to help the people um, in the like older people who aren't going to be able to um, do their shopping in the same way that they did or something and they're going to leave groceries by the front door or they're, you know, so there are ways that we band together sometimes um, that are more creative. And I think we just have to think a little harder now about how to show up for people and how to listen listen, don't, you know, it shouldn't just be about you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that seems obvious, but often, you know, in, in friendship, too many of us do that thing where we're not really listening. We're just waiting for the chance to now say what we wanted to say about us again. And, uh, and so listening, showing up, noticing what's going on with someone and just even acknowledging it even if there's nothing you can do to help, but like you say, hey, I see, I see you, I see what's going on, and I'm sorry, or I'm glad if it's good news, you know, um, that kind of thing is really, really important, and that that positivity is the last piece. Is just um, remember that if friendship is supposed to make both people feel good, that you both have a role in that. And like, so appreciating someone and telling them you appreciate them, I think this is where some of that gift giving culturally across the world comes in. It's a way of showing people that you care about them and that you value them. And that's what friendship is about. It's about getting us through the stresses of day-to-day life. And boy, oh boy, are we having a stressful day-to-day time right now. And so what we need most are our friends. I mean, friends have a willingness to help in a time of crisis. That's where we are. So we we are in a time of crisis. We need to help each other. We need our friends more than ever, not less. We just need to do it from a little bit of a distance.
1: Well, Lydia, thank you so much for being here with us. Dare I say it, you've been a friend to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Bethany, for having me. It's been great. If you'd like to learn more about Lydia Denworth and her book, Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond, we've got links at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. And while you're there, be a friend to us. Subscribe to the show, follow us on social media, tell us what you like or don't like. There's also a link to our Patreon page where our best friends can help us out with a monthly donation. The monthly donation gives you access to fun extras and nice things, and it helps support the podcasters who work so hard to bring you this show. And then we might even tell you where we bury the bodies, because best (laughs) friends know where the bodies are buried. Thanks for listening, (laughs) and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the
0: People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is
1: produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.